I invite you to turn in your Bibles with me this morning to the 20th chapter of Exodus. To Exodus 20, we'll be reading there from the third verse. Of course, you'll notice immediately that um, we're taking a break this week from the current series of sermons in Genesis. Uh, we do so for the sake of considering God's Word as it applies to the situation in which we find ourselves in America today. This uh, very day, as I've mentioned already, is the uh, anniversary of the decision of our own Supreme Court in the case entitled Roe versus Wade, which usurped the authority of the states by legalizing abortion in all 50 of them. Since then, the uh, blood has flowed. The blood of the unborn, the blood of the partially born in our nation. And so many Christians are calling today Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, and surely it is right for us on such a Lord's Day that we should hear God's word, what he has to say about a nation and about a people, and particularly about his church. To Exodus 20 then, but uh, first to prayer. Our Father, we um, would follow the psalmist's example this morning and delight in your law and find it to us sweeter than honey, yea, than honey from the honeycomb, more precious than gold, our Father. For your commandments are not a burden, but a delight and our joy. So teach us, we pray, how it is that we must apply this one in this day in our own lives and our Father seek to proclaim it in our own nation for your glory and for your kingdom's sake we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Exodus chapter 20 and verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. As you know, Roe versus Wade was the decision of our United States Supreme Court on January 22, 1973, to call constitutionally defensible the killing of human beings in all stages of fetal development. That decision has effectively opened up the floodgates of blood in our land. Today, the death toll has added up to just under 46 million American lives destroyed in the wombs of their very mothers over the past 33 years. Our streets are running in blood. And as a nation, our hands are covered with it. Let me put some perspective for you on what 46 million lives means. Starting right here in Owensboro, if you go out in a circle, you must wipe out the entire populations of Kentucky, Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, Missouri and Tennessee to equal the number of Americans alone who have died 
since the legalization of abortion in America. Imagine getting in your car in Cleveland, Ohio, and driving to Kansas City without seeing a single living soul. From Chicago to Chattanooga without seeing a single solitary person. Or imagine the same strewn in corpses. That is what abortion has done in our land, what our nation has done in our land. We can all remember, though we can hardly believe it's, it's been over four years, when the former New York City uh, Mayor Rudolph Giuliani described the nearly 3,000 lost in the attack on the World Trade Center on September 11, 2001, when he described it as more than we can bear. Yet it would take 15,000 terrorist attacks, the proportion of 9-11, to equal the number of Americans who have died at Americans' hands. On a daily basis, abortion takes more lives than were lost in the September 11 tragedy. On average, on average, 3,800 lives are eliminated every day and have been for the past 30 years. Since 1973, the killings have occurred at an average rate of one every 24 seconds, 160 every hour. 1,400,000 a year. Or think of it this way. In the year 2000, more Americans died from abortion than died in the Revolutionary War, in the Civil War, in World Wars I and II, in the Korean and in the Vietnam and in the Gulf Wars combined. Now, after all of that, you may be thinking, some of you, that we've read the wrong verse this morning. You're thinking perhaps we should have read rather than verse 3, verse 13, which reads, you shall not murder. And, of course, that commandment clearly applies here as well. It refers to the deliberate, premeditated, and particularly unjust killing of another human being. And an abortion most certainly fits those criteria. But while I was considering the nature of abortion and what sort of thinking, what sort of mindset must certainly lie behind this bloodshed, it was not the sixth commandment concerning murder, but the first concerning allegiance to God and to Him alone that came to mind. Why? Because the moral convictions of a person and the moral convictions of a nation, for that matter, are never freestanding. They always have everything to do with one's theology, one's understanding of God. And everyone has a theology. Even atheists have a theology because everyone has what Pascal called many years ago, everyone has in his or her heart a God-shaped vacuum that demands to be filled and will be filled with one God 
or with another. And according to the nature of the God that fills one's heart, that person's moral conviction and behavior will be governed. Now, some vocal Americans have recently said that as a nation, we must have no God. That God must be struck from our national consciousness. And that, that beginning with the schools and the courts, and then indeed even from our currency. And to a certain extent, they have gained some ground. But no matter how loudly men protest that they will have no God, in matter of fact, all men are governed by some sort of God, one sort or another. In the center of every human heart, there is a throne. And from that throne will be governed that life. And someone or something will sit on that throne and govern thought and deed. Will either be the God of Scripture or a God of their own making, but all men, inescapably religious as we are by our very nature, will serve one God or another. It's simply inevitable. Someone or something will fill that God-shaped vacuum in every human heart, or, and, and someone or something will do the same in a nation, too. Carl made an interesting point to me the other day. He said that when people have argued with him about the nature of civil government, saying we don't want a theocracy, he points out to them that we already are a theocracy. Every nation is. The only question is which God rules. So the disease of our nation runs much, much deeper than any Supreme Court decision. The, indeed, Roe versus Wade and widespread abortion are but, they're but symptoms. They really are. They're, they're but symptoms of the disease. Roe versus Wade, even abortion itself, is not the sickness, are not the sickness. They are rather the symptoms of the sickness. The disease itself is much more deep, much more fundamental than that. Or to put it in terms of the commandments of God, the problem is not primarily that we are murdering our own offspring, though that certainly is a devastating sin. The problem is that we have put other gods before the one living triune God of the Scripture. And once having broken the first commandment to have no other gods before me, all the rest simply fall into place. Put other gods before the one true God and then idolatry and the taking of God's name in vain and the desecration of the Sabbath and the dishonoring of parents and murder and adultery and stealing and lying and coveting. They all just fall right in line. And is that not the quintessential description of our nation today? In fact, that the last nine commandments are regularly and rigorously broken in our land is only the telltale sign that the first commandment has been left far behind. And that, dear Christians, happened long before 
Roe versus Wade. Indeed, over a hundred years ago, the Dutch theologian Herman Bavink wrote about the conflict that would be presented to the world at the dawn of the 20th century, that it is well known that at present this conflict is no longer confined to one or another article of our Christian confession, to the authority of scripture or tradition, to justification or election, and not even any longer to the deity of Christ and the personality of the Holy Spirit. But in the spiritual conflict which is now waging in every part of the civilized world, the points at issue more and more are the principles of Christianity itself and the very fundamentals of all religion and of all morality. This conflict extends the whole length of the line. More serious and fiercer than ever before, the conflict is between the old and the new world view. Well, friends, that Herman Bavink could make that observation about the Western world a hundred years ago, no more than that, confirms that the problem is not just Roe versus Wade, which is only, after all, 33 years old. The real conflict, the real battle that is being waged on the ground and for the possession of every human life and human heart. And the champion of the enemy today in our particular place and time, the champion of the enemy is named Anthropos. We know him better as man. Vying for the throne of every American heart today is man himself. And wherever he plants his flag, it waves as the banner of humanism. Humanism is the religion that has taken the throne in our government system, from the high courtroom to the local classroom. From high-powered decisions delivered in a Washington courtroom to Johnny's textbook lessons in the Owensboro classroom are now shot through and governed by this religion, humanism. Humanism is the religion in which man is the ultimate arbiter of truth, in which decisions, laws, and actions are established and carried out not for the sake of God's glory and in obedience to his commands, but for the sake of man's glory and according to his rules. And it is a religion that is almost as old as history itself. Witness the conversation in the Garden of Eden. The serpent hisses to Eve, if you eat of it, you shall be like God. And from the very entrance of sin into the world, man has been trying desperately to dethrone God and to crown himself king and ruler of all. Eve was the first humanist. The temptation was not so much for the fruit, 
although it was pleasing to the eye, as it was for power. As Herbert Schlossberg so astutely observes, what was to be fed was her pride, and what would grow was her appetite for self-worship. The same human propensity for self-worship is behind the incessant biblical injunctions against pride. Tyre was struck down because, Ezekiel said, your heart is proud and you have said, I am God. Habakkuk wrote of guilty men whose own might is their God. The judgment at the Tower of Babel was evidently of the same order. Those who wished to make a name, they said, for ourselves, built their tower having its top in the heavens as a declaration of independence from God. Surveying civilizations across the whole span of history, Toynbee concluded that self-worship was the paramount religion of mankind, although its guises are numerous and diverse. Now is that not what this whole blood battle over abortion is really about? Just beneath the question of who shall live and who shall die lies a much more important one. Who shall rule and who shall decide? Humanism says that man shall rule and man shall decide. Hitler decided this for Europe in the 20th century and slaughtered his millions. We have decided as well and have slaughtered our tens of millions. The question of who shall live and who shall die is no longer decided, at least not in the abortion clinics, by what God's law says, but rather what, by what man's law says. Get on the internet and see sometime uh, what a desperate, struggling woman Seeking an abortion or struggling with the idea of it might find by way of internet resources. I did, and three mouse clicks into my search, I came to a website of an abortion clinic in Cincinnati. I could hardly believe what I was reading. Humanism in its purest form. And a list of questions aimed at helping women to come to terms with their decision to abort the director of this abortion clinic asks, is abortion murder? To which she responds, people who are against abortion often say it's murder. Just because they call abortion murder doesn't mean that it is. When someone calls an abortion murder, it may mean that they don't believe it could ever be right. They may feel strongly that their experience of the world is not uh, just right, but the only way for anyone to feel. These people don't understand that, that each person is capable and has a responsibility to make choices out of their own values and experience. They would like to live in a world where everyone must think and act as they say. Our society states that each person can decide about abortion based on their, that's what she wrote there, based on their moral and ethical values. A little bit further down she writes, what do 
you feel when you use the word murder. And again, each woman must decide based on her own experience and values if when choosing abortion, she's choosing murder. In another section, she discusses the question of personhood. She asks, what is your definition of personhood? What do you think? When do you say a fetus becomes a person? And here's the guidance she gives the woman seeking the answer. Some women believe that at about five months when they feel the fetus move, it is a person. Others think that around seven and a half months with further brain development, it becomes a person. Some women feel it is a person when they find that they are pregnant. Some not until the baby is born. There are many ways, different ways to look at the question of fetal life and personhood. And they're all based on personal values and experiences. What makes a person for you? Now, friends, that, that is sheer humanism. It's a lot of other things, too, but it's sheer humanism because far from God's law ruling and guiding a woman's decision, her feelings must make the decision about whether or not the person living inside her is even a person. The life inside her is even a person. And, and mark these words soon, Man will be the arbiter of life and of personhood for his newly born neighbor. And then his retarded neighbor. And perhaps his black neighbor. Or his Jewish neighbor. Or his white neighbor. Or his elderly neighbor. Indeed, who of us could have anticipated, even just a few years ago, that a legal battle would end in our nation with our own government enforcing the slow starvation of a woman? Terry Schiavo. Humanism at its purest is that ruthless. And it is that terrifying and that deadly because it finds its laws not in the unchanging law of God, but in the ever-changing feelings and thoughts of men who are themselves governed by the darkness. We have not only put other gods before us, we have made gods of ourselves. And what is the charter to guide us? Listen to this chilling paragraph from the second Humanist Manifesto, written, by the way, in 1973, the very same year as the deliverance of Roe versus Wade. We have virtually conquered the planet explored the moon, overcome the natural limits of travel and communication. We stand at the dawn of a new age. Using technology wisely, we can control our environment, conquer poverty, 
markedly reduce disease, extend our lifespan, significantly modify our behavior, alter the course of human evolution and cultural development, unlock vast new powers, and provide humankind with unparalleled opportunity for achieving an abundant and meaningful life. Well, 33 years later, we are apparently well on the way toward achieving that abundant and meaningful life for all. The weak and the infirm, the unwanted are already being destroyed, not only in the womb, but more and more even in our own nation in old age. Yes, we've unlocked vast new powers indeed. We are now dissecting tiny human beings with government funding. And soon, we think, continuing this path, we will no longer have the retarded or the sick or the non-persons with us. The pogrom is falling into place. That is where we are going. The direction in which this nation is headed unless and until this culture either be turned around or God come and crush the Babel Tower again. That is where we're bound. And that's where you come in, Christians. God has revealed to you his law and his gospel. He has made known that there is a redeemer. He has told you that there is a king to fill that throne of every human heart. Now is the time of all times, Christians, for you to be proclaiming this truth to this nation. Today is the day of salvation like never before. Our blood-stained land must hear the truth of God's word from those who will proclaim it to neighbors and friends, in church, in home, in the neighborhood. The battle for hearts and minds is on. Are you engaged in that battle? Are you wielding the sword of God's truth as you proclaim the gospel to your neighbors? Are you engaged in this battle or are you sitting on the sidelines? Fifty years ago, this month, five young missionary martyrs took the gospel to a blood-stained place too. Jim Elliott, Nate Saint, Roger Udarian, Pete Fleming, Ed McCulley, I touched down on a jungle river sandbar and made face-to-face -face contact with the Waudani, a, a culture so bloodthirsty it had nearly driven itself into extinction. You know the story. 
You've uh, read it, many of you. You've certainly heard it from this uh, pulpit uh, some years back, many of you anyway. Perhaps you've seen it this week at the theater, how the blood of those five men shed at the end of those spears was the seed of the gospel to their very killers. Their blood was shed, but it became the instrument by which a culture of bloodshed became a culture of life and of peace. Nate Saint's killer, the one who drove the spear through him, is now a grandfather in a culture where at one time a man was long-lived if he saw 30 years, and unwanted children were simply slaughtered in infancy. But did you know that before the movie that uh, opened last week was made, permission was first sought from the Waodani people they first went and asked that tribe permission to make this movie. And at first, the Waodani said no. Do you know how they convinced the Waodani to allow this movie to be made and shown in the United States? It was by explaining to them how bloody and how violent American culture has become and hearing and understanding that, they agreed that we needed to hear their message. Now, how about that for the height of irony? They've become, as it were, missionaries to us. Christians' hearts must be changed, and the only way for them to be changed is, of course, by the Holy Spirit, but the instrument he uses is the good news as it's proclaimed by his people, as it's proclaimed by you, if you will proclaim it. That though we've made ourselves gods before him, yet there is forgiveness in him that there is love beyond telling for all who will turn to him and bow the knee to him. And the only way for them to hear that good news is for you to tell it to them. Let them know that, that, that mother considering abortion, let her know that the same one who said, you shall have no other gods before me and you shall not murder, also said, come to me all who are burdened and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Let them know those who have had an abortion already and the statistics tell us that you are right here with us in this room this morning that the same one who said that the soul that sinned shall die also said that all who come to him, he will never drive away. Let the nation hear that there is hope, that there is forgiveness, there is new life, and there is the truest happiness to be found when God, thee, God, the triune God of the Bible, sits on the throne and the law of God, far from being a burden 
is in fact a delight. And it is life. Amen.